Thank you to everyone who participated in our service already this evening. Thank you for coming out tonight on this holiday weekend. Appreciate your choosing to worship and fellowship with us this evening. I think everyone has a handout. We are studying chapter 19 this evening. This is a chapter that is chock full of material. It's one that could easily be broken into a number of nights, but I am going to stay the course that we're on, and that is spending uh, one night uh, per chapter. But uh, we are entering into the really uh, glorious uh, elements of the book of Revelation. It is a crescendo. Uh, we're building to a, a climax. And tonight we begin that uh, great uh, ascent into the, the climax uh, that has to do with the Lord's return, the establishment of his kingdom, uh, resurrection of the body, and uh, eventually a new heaven and a new earth. All of that begins with our study tonight in Revelation chapter 19. Key verse is Revelation 19.6. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, and like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. So the theme is that God is to be praised for and actually by the reign of Jesus Christ. First, uh, we look at an introduction to worship in conjunction with the reign of Jesus Christ. The word hallelujah is central to our text. It is a word that is transliterated from the Hebrew, transliterated into Greek, and then transliterated into our material, hallelujah. It means praise Jehovah. And hallelujah or praise to Jehovah is certainly the central element to worship as we see it in Revelation 19 verses 1 through 6. Revelation 19 1 states, after this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Revelation 19.3, once more they cried out, hallelujah, the smoke from her grows up forever and ever. Revelation 19.4, and the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who was seated on the throne saying, amen, hallelujah. Revelation 19.6, then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty pearls of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. <clears throat> so now we're introduced to the worship of God and the various 
factors or groups that are highlighted as participating in that worship. First, the worship of the many in heaven due to the reign of Christ. Verse 1 of chapter 19, after this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice, and then this, of a great multitude in heaven. So we are introduced, first of all, to this great multitude, this incredibly large crowd of individuals that are crying out and worshiping in heaven. Verse 2, for his judgments are true and just, for he has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality, has avenged on her the blood of his saints. Once more they cried out, hallelujah. The smoke rose from her, goes up for ever and ever. Next, the worship of what I have referred to as the great and powerful in heaven. Revelation 19.4, and the 24 elders, so they are singled out. Uh, these are a distinct group of people in uh, the book of Revelation. The 24 elders are composed, it appears, of the 12 apostles and uh, 12 uh, prophets from the Old Testament. They are important entities in, uh, in heaven. Uh, they play a significant role. So the 24 elders, and then beyond the 24 elders, the four living creatures. These are creatures, they're created beings. Uh, they are angelic beings of some sort, some entity. And they also place and are uh, in significant roles in heaven. There is a structure to the angelic world. We know that there is an archangel. Uh, the archangel means he is the ruling angel. Uh, we know that there is a ruling angel over the good angels. And there is a ruling angel, Satan, over the fallen angels. These are the good angels. These are four distinct uh, entities that have uh, a source of great authority in heaven. Then there is a call to worship. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you his servants, you who fear him, small and great. So there is this invitation that is given to worship God. The reason for worship is the reign of Christ. Verse 6, Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a mighty multitude, like the roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! And here is the reason for praise unto Jehovah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. It is the reign of Jesus Christ. And as we think of Jesus Christ, he is equal with God. Oftentimes when we think of God, we truncate that to being God the Father. But never forget, there are three 
entities in the Godhead. There's God the Father, there is God the Son, and there is God the Holy Spirit. And in the reign of Jesus Christ, the triune God is exalted, lifted up, praised. And uh, we will see more of that in just a moment. Let's look at the intent of worship. What is worship to be like in heaven? The emphasis is on the attitude and heart of worship, for it begins by saying that worship is to be a time to be glad and joyful. Let us rejoice. Let us rejoice. Let us be glad. Obviously, what is bringing the joy is the reign of Jesus Christ and all that that entails. Uh, the putting down of all evil, uh, the uh, rewarding of righteousness, the no more tears, and all the things that we associate with this great reign of Jesus Christ. So it is a cause to rejoice. And I would submit to you that rejoicing should be a characteristic of our worship on earth as well. It is a time to come and give praise to God, hallelujah, lift up his name, exalt him with a sense of rejoicing as we think of all that God has done for us. So it is totally inappropriate for us in our worship to be murmuring or complaining or finding fault. We know that the children of Israel, time and time again, were murmuring and complaining at what God had done rather than to rejoice in the deliverance that God had granted them for the land of Egypt. They soon forgot all the hardships and difficulties that God had delivered them from. In fact, they got to the place where they wanted to go back. They wanted to return to Egypt, and they totally mischaracterized what it was like. They said, let us go back where we can eat the leeks and the onions. <laughs> let us go back to the good old days. They were horrendous days. They were not good old days. They had forgotten what God had delivered them from. So too, it's easy for us to forget what God has delivered us from as we think of ourselves as sinners. To realize how uh, wonderful God has been in our life. What a privilege and joy that God has saved us and brought us into a unique, privileged position before God. How inappropriate it is to murmur, to complain, to be grouchy, to find fault with the worship, to find fault with our brother and sister in Christ. It's just totally alien to what worship is to be about. It is a time of rejoicing. Secondly, worship is a time to verbally express our delight in what God is doing. Let us rejoice and exalt. The word here for exalt is quite close to the word that's translated as rejoice. For it has at its root an element again of of being glad, of being joyful. But in this instance, it is 
not just an inward feeling, but an outward expression. It is to verbally express our thankfulness for what God is doing for us. It's motivated out of a sincere, authentic appreciation and joy. So we give thanks unto God as we think about what he has done and is doing for us. So C, worship is a time to ascribe to God the praise that is due to him as the source of all goodness and blessing. Let us rejoice and exalt and give him the glory. The glory is <clears throat> to acknowledge that he is the source of all goodness. Every good and perfect gift cometh from above. This aspect of glory is that he deserves, okay, that, that this praise that he, is that he is receiving, he's worthy of. It's an acknowledgement of the fact that he's the creator, that he is the redeemer, that he is the king of kings, that he is the Lord of lords. It's a recognition that all the blessings that we enjoy come from his hand, that we are powerless, that even the very essence of our life, he is the giver and sustainer of it. He is the one who gives us the ability to work. He is the one who provides for us so that we can gain an income. He is the one who gives us the health and the strength. He is the one who has delivered us from sin. He is the one who has worked in our life to bring us to Jesus Christ. Every blessing that we enjoy should be traced back to a loving and merciful God. Everything that brings delight into our life should be seen as coming ultimately from God. And so it is that expression that God, you are worthy. You deserve the glory. You deserve the praise. Nothing else. No one else. Not ourselves. Not an angel. Nothing deserves this praise but God and God alone as being the source of all goodness and blessing. The privilege of worship. Revelation 19, 7. Let us rejoice and exult and give him the glory. For the marriage of the Lamb has come. And the bride has made herself ready. Verse 8. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. This is the readiness. The readiness is for the bride to have clothed herself with fine linen, to be bright and pure. It's the picture of a bride on her wedding day. And of course, she wants to look her best. She wants to be dressed in a beautiful gown. More money spent on a wedding dress than any other dress in her wardrobe. It's one that's picked out with great thought. It's one that's awfully, often adorned in uh, all kinds of glitter or uh, that which is soon to, uh, seen to be beautiful. It's often white to picture purity. Here is this bride of Christ, that's us, that's the people of God who have been adorned 
in anticipation, looking forward to this, this marriage that's going to take place when we're going to be in the presence of God forever and ever. And it says it was granted her. It was granted her. This is the work of God. This is the grace of God. Ephesians tells us that Jesus Christ died to present unto himself a bride that's pure. All of our fine linens, all of our purity, all that we have that we are going to present to Jesus Christ has been granted to us, given to us, made possible to us by the grace of God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Then verse 9. The angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This comes by invitation alone. It's given to those who belong to Jesus Christ. This morning, we looked at this verse. For those of you who are not here, we celebrated communion. And one of the things that we said about communion is that Jesus said, I will not eat of this again until I eat of it in the kingdom. And we looked at this verse. There's this marriage supper of the Lamb, a feasting, a feasting at the table of this great banquet that we are invited to. It is the reception, if you will, if you think of the marriage. And we are all part of the role of the bride, of having a place at this banquet that is reserved for the ones whom Christ loves. That is the privilege of worship. Last week, I said in a Sunday morning service, it is impossible for a person who doesn't know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior to worship him. He will not receive it. It is empty. You cannot truly worship in spirit and truth without knowing Jesus as your Lord and Savior. And he will say to those who have professed to worship him, who have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, depart from me, I never knew you. Thirdly, the only object of worship is God. Then I fell down at his feet. The feet is the feet of the angel who has been showing uh, the apostle John these things. I fell down at his feet, the feet of the angel, to worship him. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you. And your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus, worship God. Worship God. God is the only one that is to be worshipped. It is Satan's one ambition for us to worship him. It was the great temptation that he placed before Jesus in Jesus' earthly ministry. He promised Jesus, all these kingdoms I will give to you if you bow down and worship me. 
You shall have no other God before me. There is to be no worship but worship of God alone, the triune God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. So here is this introduction to worship. And the worship is because of the reign of Jesus Christ. So now we look at the inauguration of this kingdom. We look uh, as to how this, this kingdom is to be established. The conquering Christ arrives to reign in chapter 9, verses 11 and 16. There's the description of the conqueror on the white horse. Initially, we're not told who it is. By the end, we know who it is. So I've just uh, unveiled it for you ahead of time. Christ is described in this incident, and he's described in a variety of ways. First, Christ is described as trustworthy. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True. And so I have summed that up as being trustworthy. He is reliable. He can be counted on. He is faithful. He is true. Everything that Jesus has promised us will come to pass because he is faithful and he is true. He is honest and he continues in all that he says. So as we think about this kingdom, every single promise, every commitment that Jesus has made to us is going to be realized. Next, Christ is described as righteous in both judging and making war with his enemies. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. So every decision that he makes, every decision that he pronounces, every judgment, and here by judgment, it doesn't mean condemnation, it means a determination. Every determination that God makes in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, every assessment, every evaluation, Every determination upon our individual acts and the acts of all of creation are righteous determinations. He is worthy of being praised. I remember one time as a father uh, making a determination when my kids were fighting. And uh, I remember spanking Suki for what she had done. Only to find out a couple of hours later that I didn't have the whole story. I really didn't know the truth. And she wasn't deserving of the spanking. And I felt awful. But I tried to make a right determination. I wanted to do the right thing, but I failed in doing so. Not so with Jesus. Not so with Jesus. There will be no injustice 
in his rules, in his decisions, in his judgments. He will rule in absolute righteousness. And I would love to unpack that, as I say. This, this could easily be a series. And this is one of the, the wonderful delights as we think about this kingdom, this, this righteousness, because he is all-knowing. He isn't going to be based on the reports of what others tell him. I was relying on what the sisters said. I was relying on things that I did not know, that there was no possible ability for me to understand and to get into the heart of this matter, but not so with Christ. Not so with Christ. All of his determinations are righteous. They are just. They are true. And not only is he righteous in his judgments, he's also righteous in the making of war. Making of war. Uh, we live in a fallen world. Uh, the reformers talked about the concept of a, a just war. There are times in which nations are to go to war. There are times in which righteousness needs to be defended. There are just occasions for war. And in the Old Testament, one of the things that the nation of Israel was to do before they went to war is they were to inquire of God. Shall we go up or shall we not go up? Shall we go to battle? Shall we not go to battle? And it was to be God who was to make that determination. So too, we should look for just and right principles. Conversely, in the book of James, it says ye have not because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not because you ask amiss. Where come wars among you, it says. What causes war to exist? Greed, ambition that exists in the hearts of individuals and even in nations that want to take over other people's property, other people's domain, other people's resources, uh, so that people, so that nations go to war over oil and over all kinds of things that are totally unjust. There is a time and place for war. Romans, excuse me, Ecclesiastes 3, starting with verse 1 says, for everything there's a season, a time for everything that's under the heavens. A time to be born and a time to die. And it gets, goes through the list of ten things and it ends with a time of war and a time of peace. There's a time for war. There's a time for peace. This, when the Lord Jesus Christ returns, will be a time for war. It will be a time for Jesus to deal with his enemies. It will be a time for them to be put down. He will have been long-suffering. He will have been patient. He will have endured much. But now comes the time for justice. Now comes the time for peace. And for that to happen, the enemies have to be subdued. Third, Christ is described as intense in his judgment. His eyes are like a flame of fire. Christ is described as ruling over all. <clears throat> and on his head are many diadems, many crowns. 
the idea there is that he's king of kings and lord of lords. He has not but one crown, he has many crowns, for he rules over all things. And Christ rules as a result of his sacrificial death. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. Christ is revealed as the word. Revelation 19:12. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and by the name, so here is this name. The name that only he knew is now revealed, and it is that which he is called the word of God. The word of God. The word is a source of revelation concerning God. John 1.14, uh, well, let's go back to John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything that was made. So the Word is the Creator. The Word is Jesus Christ, according to Colossians. Again, all things were made by Him and through Him. He is the word when Genesis 1 says, and God said, let us make man. When God said, when God spoke his creation into existence by his word, it's in the power and the authority of Jesus Christ. Christ is the revelation. He is the expression. He is the means by which we Come to know who God is in his fullness. So John 1.14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. The glory is the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The revelation of God's grace and truth is best known in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word is the manifestation of the power of God. Verse 15, from his mouth, that is the writer, that is Jesus Christ, comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. You see this, this sword, and I think I allude to it again, but I'll say it here. This sword is his, his mouth. It is his word. We have a reference in the great hymn of a mighty fortress is our God. And you may remember the line concerning the destruction of uh, the evil one. One little word shall fell him, strike him down, defeat him. All it takes is for Christ to say it, and it's done to speak it, and it's accomplished. Back to under A, the word is a source of revelation concerning God. This is one purpose of the reign of Christ. In the Old Testament, Adam is created. And Adam is given dominion over the earth. He is to be the representative of God. He is to be the expression of who God 
is. So we find in Genesis 1, let us make man in our image after our likeness. So man is created in the image or likeness of God. In what sense? Let him have dominion over the land and over the sea. The dominion, the reign, is what is most reflective of the image of God. It is God as ruler. Let mankind rule this earth in reflection of God's rule over all creation. The problem was that mankind did not rule over this earth in a way that is truly reflective of the way in which God rules over this earth because mankind chose to sin. And when mankind sinned, he failed to represent the kind of rule and authority that is expressed in God. We rule in tyranny. We rule in injustice. We rule out of selfishness. We don't rule in the nature and character of God. So Jesus, in 1 Corinthians 15, is referred to as the second Adam. Also in Romans chapter 5. For now, he is going to come in this earth, and as a man, as the son of David, as God intended for the kingdom of Israel to be reigning over this earth in justice and righteousness and holiness, and the best of kings failed in that, David, using his power to have Uriah killed to commit adultery with Bathsheba, the best of earthly kings, failed tremendously. Jesus comes as the son of David, prophesied in Luke chapter 2, Behold, a child will be born unto you, and the kingdom of David is going to be granted unto him. So this reign of Jesus Christ is a manifestation of the way in which mankind was intended to rule over this earth. Seven, Christ is coming with his heavenly host. <clears throat> and the armies of heaven arrayed in linen. Here is this great host. The host are, are the armies of heaven. It speaks of the power and the might of the angels. And uh, you heard me say already in the book of Luke, in the great Christmas story, uh, where it says that the, angel, the uh, shepherds were gathered on the hillside and an angel appeared unto them. And uh, as the angel spoke, uh, the heavens were opened. <laughs> the glory of God was revealed and there was a heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. And if you remember me saying, that is not a heavenly choir. As so often it's referred to. It's not. It's a heavenly host. It's a heavenly army. It's a foreshadowing of what's happening in Revelation chapter 19. They're saying, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. Here is the 
peace offering. Here is a way to come under the authority of God and to avoid all kinds of destruction and harm. He has come to be a savior. So here is this army coming to pronounce and announce the way for peace. Goodwill toward men. Revelation chapter 19, this army's coming with a whole different intent. This army is coming now to establish this heavenly kingdom and to bring justice to this earth. B, the actions of the rider on the white horse foretold. First, he will conquer his foes simply by his word. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Of course, we should immediately think of Hebrews that tells us that his word is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Uh, there's no battle that takes place. Um, I'm jumping ahead. Number two, he will rule over them with absolute control. He will rule them with a rod of iron. Uh, during this time, and we're looking at the millennial kingdom, we're looking at the thousand-year reign of Christ. During that thousand-year reign of Christ, there's going to be outward obedience. There is going to be subjection to Christ. Absolutely. In every aspect of creation. But it is an external allegiance. It's not an internal allegiance. That's why it's a rule of iron. A rule with forcefulness. At the end of a thousand years, and we'll see this as we continue to work through the book of Revelation, there's going to be an uprising. There's going to be one last Rebellion, And, of course, that's going to be put down as well. He rules with a rod of iron. And he will rule over them fully. <clears throat> Excuse me. He rules over them in his wrath. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And so he is, is going to be pouring out his judgment upon any disobedience whatsoever. And he will rule over them fully. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings, Lord of Lords, no challengers. Next there's a call to the birds to feast on the bodies of the wicked. The birds are summoned to God's feast. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God. The wicked are not participants in the feast, but instead are the food for the birds upon which to feast. Verse 16, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of the mighty men, the flesh of horses, their riders, the flesh of all men, both free, slave, both small, both great. Here we are to see the stark contrast of the blessedness of God's people to partake in the wedding feast and these that are going to be part of the feast that the birds are going to be feeding upon. There's a stark contrast. How wonderful, how blessed to be part of the marriage feast and how awful it is to be a part of this other feast of which they are not participants, but they're the food 
which brings us to number four, the futile attempt, the futile attempted revolt against Christ reign by the wicked. When Christ appears on this white horse, there is going to be a uh, an attempted revolt. Verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the throne. So here is this rejection. When Christ comes, there will be those that don't want him to reign, even as they did not want him to reign over them in this life. And so they are going to stand up. It's described in Psalm chapter 2 of the nations gathering together to oppose. But, of course, it will be futile. The enemies of Christ are defeated and punished. The enemies are defeated. And the beast was captured and with it the false prophet. Revelation 19.21, and the rest were slain. The enemies of Christ are punished, and the beast, and with it the false prophet. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. So the beast and the false prophet are immediately assigned to hell. Revelation 19.21. The rest, that's the kings of the earth. That's the inhabitants. That is these earthly armies. The rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. Again, it's just his spoken word. There are not angels involved in this. They accompany, they're riding behind on white horses as Christ comes, but there's not some great battle that is taking place with angels yielding swords against humans and against the false prophet. No, there's going to be this array, there's going to be a battlefield, and Christ is just going to speak. And they're defeated. Again, we have the foreshadowing. Remember when Jesus is in the garden and the army came against him, the captain of the guard with the soldiers, and Peter lops off the ear of Malchus, and Jesus tells him to put up his sword. Do you not think I could not call a thousand angels? But what happens? They say to him, are you Jesus? He said, I am. And they fell backwards. They fell to the ground. Jesus was demonstrating, you have no power over me. You are not subduing me. You are not taking me to this cross. I'm going voluntarily. I'm going willingly. All that's required was him to say, I am, 
and they were smitten. A foreshadowing of when Jesus comes and the armies are gathered against him. One little word will fell them. Revelation 19, 21, the second verse under point two. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with flesh. There will also be resurrected in the judgment and cast in the lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20, verses 13 and 14. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown in the lake of fire. So my point is, in Revelation chapter 19, the false prophet, the beast, immediately are assigned to the lake of fire. These enemies, these earthly enemies, these, these human beings, they're slain. They die physically. When you get to chapter 20, at the end of the millennial kingdom, they're going to be raised. And when they're raised, they're judged finally, and they too are cast into that very same lake of fire that the beast and the prophet are. Conclusion, there is reason to rejoice on behalf of the people of God. There is a fearful looking to judgment for those that don't know him. What a difference between those who are in heaven, those who belong to Jesus, and those that don't. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage of the Lamb, who participate in this kingdom. May we look forward May we have complete confidence that there is this coming kingdom where all injustices are avenged, where right prevails. Goodness will be manifested. And even as the children of Israel were looking forward to a promised land that was flowing with milk and honey, we are looking forward to ultimately a new heaven and a new earth and it will flow with milk and honey in ways that are totally unimaginable. He will provide for us fully and completely in utter bliss and utter joy. And the greatest sense of that joy is being with Jesus forever and ever. And our praise will be on our lips saying hallelujah for all that we enjoy comes from you. Thank you, O oh God, for our place in this kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, give us tonight a sense of rejoicing. Give us a sense of what awaits us. Give us anticipation. O oh Lord, may we see that any hardship or difficulty that is coming upon us now pales as we think of all the goodness and joy that lies before us. May we acknowledge today that you reign. And one day we'll come back to this earth and that reign is going to be manifested in great power, great authority, ruling with a rod of iron. Lord, thank you 
that when you come, we will be on the victory side, that we'll be feasting, we'll be rejoicing, we will be giving thanks. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, and you are dismissed.